So Riverview started way back in 1977, when some of you weren't born yet, um, on the campus of Michigan State University. And for the first 24 years of our existence as a church, we were nomadic. So we wandered around campus and met, uh, met in various classrooms and auditoriums and homes in the area until finally in 2001, 24 years after we launched as a church, we built built our first building, um, which is out in Holt here, the, uh, what is now the Kids Wing, um, was our original building, and we finally had like this permanent home. And, and so what happened is, over the first couple of years that we were in this new home, people started to come in in droves, new people that we had uh, never seen before. And, and guess what? The number one question that we got from these new people who came into our new building was... It was, where's the cross? Like, we got asked all the time, why isn't there a cross in the building? And the first couple of times, it kind of threw us off. Like, why are people asking this question? And then we realized most church buildings had a cross. Now, for 24 years at Michigan State, we were meeting on campus. We didn't have a cross in our building. It didn't dawn on us building the building. So we had to come up with an answer. And so my quick answer that I learned to give was, well, at Riv, we are more concerned with preaching the cross and living the cross than we are in having a cross on the building, right? And that just became my... My answer, and then if they didn't like that, I pointed out that the windows had tons of little crosses in them, and, and, and we had hundreds of crosses on the building. Um, and then we launched our Rio Town venue, which also doesn't have a cross, but it does have wonderful bowling alley floors, and so that doesn't help, but it, it's neat. Um, and then finally, we got our West Side venue with a bunch of crosses on it, so that worked out very well for us. And when we were talking about expanding uh, the whole venue from just the original thing that is the kids' wing now to what we have and where we meet now, there was all these conversations that we had with the architects, and we were trying to explain to them why we didn't feel it was necessary to have a big steeple with a big cross on the top of the steeple. We had all these conversations, and it was at that time that I learned a new word. That word is cruciform. And what cruciform means, it's largely an architectural term. It means having the shape of a cross. And, and if you travel around Europe especially, but there's a lot of them in America as well, you'll find that a lot of church buildings are actually designed in the shape of a cross. In fact, there's really cool ones in Europe where it's like the, the short part of the cross there at the top is where the altar is up front, right? And then it kind of goes out this way and out this way, and people sit along all of those, those edges around the cross. And so that's what a cruciform life is. Now, I have nothing against that. I have nothing against church buildings with crosses on them. I love art. I love crosses. No problem with that. But I still stand by my 20-year-old thesis that it is more important for us to preach the cross and to live the cross uh, than anything else. And that leads us right to a very interesting and often overlooked book in the Bible, and that is the book of 2 Corinthians. One commentator I was reading said this about 2 Corinthians. He said, few portions of the New Testament pose as many problems for translators and interpreters as does 2 Corinthians. Few, therefore, are the preachers who undertake a systematic exposition of its contents. And I found that to be true. When we started working on the series, I started to see, hey, what, what have other preachers done with this? And I started searching for even some really famous preachers and found that they didn't have any sermons on this. It was really interesting. 
interesting. So another commentator wrote this. This book has been neglected by scholarship and in preaching. There are fewer commentaries on 2 Corinthians than any other New Testament book. This is unfortunate because it is the source of Paul's most definitive discussion on the sufferings of the Christian life. Suffering. Maybe that's why this book is so overlooked. So when we're trying to decide what to teach on next after we had, um, you know, our big fall series, which was very, very topical in nature, I just kept coming back to the book of 2 Corinthians. And it wasn't initially because of the theme of suffering, at least not at first. When I started looking at 2 Corinthians, I realized that the world, the original audience to whom 2 Corinthians was written, is strikingly like ours. And because it is strikingly like ours, the solutions to the things that we face are the same solutions to the things they face. And what you'll see in 2 Corinthians is it is all about living a cross-shaped life. And so here's the plan. We are going to stroll through 2 Corinthians. We're not going to race through it, which means it's going to take us 27 weeks. We're going to go all the way until July 7th is the current plan to work our way through this book. And so when you came in, we handed you a journal, although I do hear they're going like hotcakes, so we ordered another whole set of them already. Uh, if you didn't get one, there's a QR code, I think, on your, on your handout to get a, a PDF version. But what we did is we created a journal. It's a simple journal. Pastor James did a lot of work on this thing. Basically, what it is, is it goes through week by week, the chunks of scripture that we're going to be teaching through. We gave you a couple key themes, some cross-references if you want to look them up, but then we gave you a bunch of pages for notes. And our hope for you, um, and why we gave this to you, is we'd like you to travel through 2 Corinthians with us. And some of you will do it in wildly different ways. Some of you like to get ahead. You're those people. Um, and so if you want to do that, you can look at the passage we're going to teach next, think through the themes, look at the cross-references, make your notes, and then come here and see if we're wrong, right? So you can do that. Um, you can also bring it with you to church and use this to take your sermon notes if you want. We're still going to give you handouts because some people freak out if they don't have that for their notes. So we'll give you both. Um, you can take your notes here. We're also going to have this new podcast we're launching where we're going to cover more details. You can have this with that. And the hope is by the end of this series, you're going to have a little book in your own writing that has 2 Corinthians and these thoughts from this book all for you that you'll be able to have that for the rest of your life. So my challenge to you is let's lean in together. Let's, 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 let's show up every week. Let's bring our Bibles. If you're a Bible person, you like to write in your Bible too. Bring your journal with you. Let's lean into this idea of what it means to live a cross-shaped life. So today what we're going to do is we're going to spend about half of our time setting the stage for the whole series, about half our, of our time covering seven verses in this uh, 2 Corinthians. The first half may be super nerdy. And if that's not your jam, uh, just try your best to stay awake. If you got to get another cup of coffee, do that, because it is vitally important stuff that'll set up the whole series. And so let me do a quick prayer, and then we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, we do pray for this book, um, and we pray for our time over the next 27 weeks. And we just pray um, that you would show us on your pages and through your spirit uh, what it means to live a, a cross-shaped life and, and to follow Jesus in that manner. And so uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout 
Achaia. Now this is really night typical stuff for the Apostle Paul. When he starts out a letter like this, he always starts out with a greeting. If he has someone with him, he mentions that person, and then he mentions the audience to his letter, and his wording can vary a little bit, and there's a phrase here that he throws into five of his letters of his 13 letters, and it's this phrase right here, by God's will. And if you look at the different five letters that Paul uses this phrase in, in his introductory remarks, it seems to be in the letters where he has something to prove. And, and that's sort of decidedly so in this letter. One of the themes you're going to see over the course of the next half year is that there were people in the church there in Corinth who were opposing Paul. They were opposing him. They were opposing his message. And some of them may have been holdovers from 1 Corinthians, uh, the book before this one. And, and, and in 1 Corinthians, we had Christians that were like taking sides on all kinds of stuff. Um, some of them were Roman or Greek or Jewish, and they wanted their cultural style churches. Uh, there were divisions around whether people had to keep the Mosaic law um, or whether they, 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 you know, they had to be under the law. There were other people who rejected Jesus' suffering. Uh, there were other people who were fighting about which leader they liked better in the church. So we don't know how many of those holdovers were still arguing against Paul. But we know that going through 2 Corinthians, there were a lot of new people opposing Paul, <laughs> trying to discredit his message by discrediting him. In fact, here are some of the accusations you're going to see against the Apostle Paul that show up in this, this letter. Some people are mad at him because he broke a promise to them. He said he was going to be there, he was going to travel into town, and some people were mad that he didn't come. Um, some people were upset at him because he was a powerful writer, but sort of boring when he would speak, right? They were like, they wanted him to be flashier when he spoke. Other people were mad at him because he wasn't accepting money from certain rich people that wanted to support his ministry, and he had some reasons for that. Um, and some people were mad at him because he wasn't orthodox enough of a Jew. Uh, some people were mad at him because he didn't base his ministry on fancy supernatural visions, okay? So what all of these sorts of attacks against Paul are what are called ad hominem attacks. You know what those are? We still do them today. We try to discredit someone so we can discredit their message, so if you can discredit an author, you can throw out their books. If you can discredit a, a politician, then you can discredit their policies. If you can discredit a pastor, then you can discredit the gospel. And so this is what was happening. They were personal attacks against Paul that were meant to undermine what he was teaching. And so in 2 Corinthians, what we're going to see is he defends himself and he does it kind of awkwardly. And that might even be some of the reasons people don't like the book. Like, for instance, later on, he'll say, boasting is foolish, so I have to boast for a while. I mean, that's sort of, like, awkward, like, for him to do, right? That sort of thing shows up in the book. And the reason Paul has to boast and he has to defend himself is because he knew that his message that he was preaching was so important that if people were tying him to that message, um, that they were trying to discredit the actual message itself. So he had to kind of get into proving he was who he said he was. And we're going to get into that. Now, what I think is interesting is that we live in an age where people are still launching ad hominem attacks against Paul. 
<laughs> they still are. Uh, and there's irony because some people, like for instance, say, well, I like Jesus more than Paul, which is literally one of the things he addresses. Um, there are other people who say that Paul is giving his own opinion on matters, um, and then that way they can disregard his clear instructions just because they happen to be hot-button issues of our day. And so I think the reason Paul starts with this phrase, by God's will, is he's reminding them, I got my job from God. <laughs> Jesus picked me for this. And as an apostle, that meant he was someone who saw Jesus face to face, got his marching orders from him. And so he's basically saying, I have the authority to set doctrine, to instruct the church how to live out the Christian faith. And so he has to kind of defend that, even if it was awkward for him to do. <laughs> So the next thing Paul mentions is Timothy, our brother. This is not unusual. He'll mention someone who's with him, maybe someone who helped him write the book. But Timothy was known to the Corinthians. So it's likely he threw that in there to kind of like, hey, you guys know Tim, right? And so he put that in there as well. Paul is the primary author, but he will sometimes use we language in, the, in 2 Corinthians, and he's referring to him and Timothy. Now, here is who he's written the book to. He says, to the church of God at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Now, I think it's significant that Paul uses the singular term for the church. He says, the church. Now, this church in Corinth was scattered across the city. They were meeting in various people's homes, typically people in the church who had more money so they could host people in their bigger homes. And even though they met in a whole bunch of different places, they were one church. Think like a multi-site church <laughs> or a church that meets in a bunch of rib communities around the city, but all gather as one church in that city. That's what he's talking about. So let's talk about this city of Corinth for a second. And this is where we're really going to nerd out. And by the way, um, this is two weeks in a row with maps. And so I'm trying to catch up to Pastor James. Um, and, and so, so just, uh, just take a look at this map for a second. This is Spain over here, like right here, right? And then this is Africa. This is Italy. You recognize the boot right there. And now this over here is Greece. And this is where Corinth is. Corinth at this time, now, right now, has about 30,000 people who live there. By the way, that's about half the size of Spartan Stadium for context, right? And it is a largely, for us right now, an unimportant city. Nobody cares about Corinth today. But in the first century, this was a very, very crucial city. Uh, think about it as like, like uh, London, Las Vegas, uh, Hollywood, Tokyo, kind of all wrapped up into one. It was what Corinth was. And so if you asked anybody in the Roman Empire about Corinth, they would have powerful images in their mind like right away. Like, uh, just like we would have Times Square, right? Or we would have to be able to picture that or the Hollywood side. We, we just had imagery. Well, they had imagery as well. And a lot of it was around false worship. Uh, there was a temple there uh, to Asclepios, which was the god of medicine, and that temple was like a day spa. Uh, they had like, like pools and gyms and baths and libraries and gardens, and it was that sort of thing. Then there was a temple to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love and sex, and that was located at the Acropolis, and they had 1,000 priestesses that worked the temple as temple prostitutes as part of the worship of the god, goddess of love and sex. And then there was the cult of Dionysus, and that one used imageries of, you know, satars, you know, like the, the half man, half like creature thing, and centaurs, you know, that whole thing. And they had, we'll call it, there's kids in the room, exaggerated uh, male parts on those the worship services, okay? Um, and as part of their cultic worship, the men would dress as women as part of that worship. And so this culture in Corinth was highly sexualized, 
um, anything could, would go, like there. That's how it was, because Corinth was quite literally where all the cultures of the world met together. So let's just zoom in a little bit on Corinth to talk about this for a second. You'll notice Corinth is actually in a pretty strategic location. This little piece of land right here is what separates northern and southern Greece. And you've got the Mediterranean Sea down here. You've got the Aegean Sea over here. So for instance, if you were at Athens and you had to go to Sparta, you know, for a game or something, right? Um, you had two choices. You could take a ship through the water over here, or you could go through land, which would take you right through Corinth. If you were in the Mediterranean Sea, and like, let's say you're coming from Italy, which is conveniently off the map over here. But if you're coming from Italy and you needed to get to the Aegean Sea, you had two options. You could take your ship all the way underneath Greece through all of these islands, and they had a saying about it back then, if you decide to take that route, write your will first. Because it was super, super dangerous to go that way. So the other option, because they came up with a genius idea, is that people would take their ship through here to here. Now what would they do at that point? This is where it gets great. They would take the ship out of the water and put it on rollers and 180 dudes would pull your ship across the land right past Corinth. That place became known as, it was called Diokos, which means roll across. <laughs> Isn't that great? So it's just, oh, are you going to the roll across today? And so people would roll across to Corinth. So if you're trying to take the land somewhere, you go through Corinth. If you're trying to take the sea somewhere, you go through Corinth. Everybody went through Corinth. So everybody was on a major trade route. And so there were Roman garrisons there. We had Roman uh, Roman generals would retire there because it was such a cool metropolitan area. And so it was Greek, it was Roman, it was made up of intellectuals, um, uh, people who liked to party, um, the Roman elite, non-ethnic Jews, slaves. It was wildly diverse. And then every two years in Corinth, there was a set of games that was second only to the Olympics, and it was a giant party that people would come from around the world, um, and it became known as a riotous party town. So if there was a Greek play, and somebody showed up on stage, and they were pretending to be drunk, you knew they were a Corinthian. That's like how much of a party town they were. Is that all they had to do was pretend to be drunk and be like, oh yeah, that guy's from, that guy's from Corinth. And it was to this city that Paul is writing here. And he had first written, we have the first Corinthians, the book that is the largest book that we have that he wrote here. Um, we covered it about 11 years ago, so you probably remember that. Um, but this, the first Corinthians, was not his first letter to Corinth. There's a little bit of debate about this, um, and people have varying views on the Corinthian letters, but my view is that he wrote a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians, which we do have, and then he wrote another letter that we don't have that is called the severe letter, people call it, because it was intense. We don't have that one. Can't wait to read it in glory. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians. And, and what happens is these missing letters causes some of the interpretive difficulties that I mentioned earlier. And, and the reason is because some scholars think that some of the missing letters are jammed into like 2 Corinthians. So like some people believe that like Second Corinthians was written and somebody stuck the severe letter in there and then some scribe kind of took that and wrote the whole thing together into Second Corinthians. Now, I don't think that's the case, but it is a, a viewpoint that's out there. Now, it doesn't change the message. It does change the color commentary on the message a little bit. Um, and, and so Apostle Paul had a huge interest in this city. 
He planted the church that was there. Um, he loved to go to metropolitan areas that were highly influential and plant churches because then when people would get saved, they would go from there and take the gospel with them around the world. And Paul was uniquely wired to do this. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen who was raised in a Greek culture, and he was a Jew. <laughs> and so his church planting strategy worked really great in Corinth. So he went there, he planted the church, he lived there for a year and a half, and then he moved on. And so the book of 2 Corinthians is quite different than 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is basically Paul yelling at the church for the whole book, right? The whole tone is him yelling. That's pretty much what it is. Um, it was a hardcore rebuke, which I think is fascinating because that means that letter three was worse than that, which is, again, another reason I can't wait to read it someday. Um, 2 Corinthians is oddly autobiographical, and, and Paul is, like I said, defending himself, but he also has all these emotional highs and emotional lows, and sometimes his tone shifts. It's almost like, I, I think of it like he was writing, and then he went to sleep, and he woke up in a different mood, um, and then he kept writing. Like, it, there's sometimes you're just reading along, and that's where people think, oh, the other letter was just stuck in there. And it's like, no, you just, you, you've had those days, you're writing something, you're like, I shouldn't send this email, I shouldn't send this email, right? Now I'm gonna save the draft, and then you get up in the morning, and you hammer out the rest of it, right? Because you've been dreaming about it all day. That's, that's Paul, I think. That's, um, so anyway, if there's one theme in the book of 2 Corinthians, it's the word affliction. That word in Greek is right here. Um, anyone want to attempt to say it? Flipsies. You got to get the flip. Oh, sorry. I spit everywhere tonight. Um, you got to get the T-H. It's flipsies. This word is, is translated affliction, and it has all these contexts. To crush, to press, to compress, to squeeze. The root word is to break. That's the theme of this book. Isn't that encouraging? That's where we're going to be for 27 weeks. Um, and, and Paul uses this word nine times, three times in the, in the verb tense in the course of this letter. And so we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is kind of like Paul's catchphrase. He uses this uh, almost exact phrase, uh, very similar to this phrase, every time in one of his letters, and it's a powerful start. It's a reminder of the cause and effect of our life. The grace is God's action toward us. Peace is what we get as a result. And so this will become important in this particular letter as he talks about affliction, which he does right away. Verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. What Paul is doing right away from the beginning is he's reminding us that God is not just the Father of Jesus, which he is, but he's also the Father of mercies, um, that he is the God, the creator of comfort. And this is what the gospel of Jesus is all about. This is what the gospel of Jesus, if you're new to the Jesus thing, let me just tell you what it's all about. Sin presses in on us from every side. And sin, we like to say at Riv, is any failure um, to reflect the image of God in our nature, our attitude, or our action. And so sin just presses in on us from the world around us, and it also bubbles up from inside of us. And the consequence of our sin, and other people's sin, it, 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 it mars society, right? It creates systems and cultures that crush us and break us, and we all know that affliction all too well. And we've seen broken relationships, inner turmoil, and sin in our lives, just kind of like we tend to long for things to be made right. 
But then along comes Jesus, who is the Son of God. And what does he do? He lives a perfectly holy and righteous life, and the people and the systems and the cultures of the world didn't know what to do him, so they broke him. They took him to the cross, crucified him on the cross, which was a, a, a brutal instrument of death. When people put a cross on their building, to put it into context, it's like you're putting an electric chair on your building, but more brutal. That's really what the cross represents. And Jesus was broken on that cross, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And this was God's plan to offer mercy and comfort to a broken world. But that doesn't mean that the pain in this world disappears. But he did create a plan to deal with the pain in this world. Verse four, he comforts us in all of our, our afflictions so that we are able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. I want you to check this out. Every one of us faces pain and hardship. Some of that is pain that we've brought onto ourselves. Others, people have brought that pain onto us. Some of it, it seems just super random. Sickness, or the loss of a job, or the loss of a loved one. And Paul addresses all of this suffering by starting very, very narrow. Watch what he does here. He says, just as the, the sufferings of Christ overflow to us. Well, what does that mean? That's a weird phrase. Like, like, he can't mean the suffering that comes out of my life because I did something stupid, right? Can't be that, right? He can't be talking about the suffering that comes onto me because someone else did something wrong to me, right? Can't be that either. Because no, those aren't him. That's not the suffering of Christ. Or what about the random stuff that happens in this world, the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that, that didn't, I didn't ask for, right? The, the, that's not the suffering of Christ. What is the suffering of Christ? Well, let me read four quick passages and see if you can find it. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, Philippians 3, verse 10. My goal is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of his sufferings being conformed to his death. All right, now watch. These are Jesus' words. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said, you are a blessing, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, so let's put our thinking caps for a second. What is, does it mean that Jesus' suffering overflows to us? I think what it means from all these passages and more, I just gave you a, a scratch the surface. It means when we suffer, because we follow Jesus. Think about this for a second. 
when we suffer because we rank Jesus' word over any pundit or politician or pop star. When we suffer because we stand for a biblical worldview, even when we are mocked or belittled or canceled, we suffer. Because there will be times uh, when you will say that something is morally wrong that our world celebrates, and you say that because you follow Jesus, and you will suffer for it. There will be times when you turn the other cheek, when someone is mistreating you because you follow Jesus, and you will suffer for it. There will be times where your family and your, your, your priorities and, and your bank account and your, your calendar look absolutely bonkers to people because you follow Jesus and you will suffer for it. You see, there's this false idea that sneaks its way into our belief system. And, and, and it happens all the time. This happens with Christians a lot. We all do it to some degree or another. Uh, let me lay it out as bluntly as possible. We tend to believe that if our belief system is true, that all pain and suffering will go away. Right? Isn't that kind of our snuck premise? We think if, if, if what I believe is true, all pain and suffering will go away. Life will be all sunshine and rainbows. But the world doesn't work that way. Not while there's still sin left in this world, right? So suffering is going to be part of our story. Suffering is going to be part of your story and my story and our stories at church. Suffering is what we're going to face. It's going to be part of all of our stories. And if we follow Jesus, his suffering will overflow to us as we stand for him in this culture and the world we're in. And that is the beautiful thing of this is that suffering is not the end of the story. For just as the sufferings, um, for just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. This is the great plot twist of the gospel. <laughs> if our hope is not here on earth, but it's in heaven, if our joy is not just in pleasure that we get here on earth, but it's in Jesus, then we can look to him for comfort. And just as his suffering overflows from him into us, his comfort will overflow to us. And because his comfort is overflowing to us, it's got to go somewhere, right? That's what overflowing does. It hits your cup, right? You ever stood there and just, you just keep, like, oh, we, oh, we have this stupid new refrigerator. I have to tell you, we got our refrigerator died, we got a new refrigerator. Problem with our refrigerator is the, 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 the little hose is just past the cup. It's designed wonderfully. It's just so you have to put your hand behind it. But then, now we can't see. You're kind of down there trying to get water, and the water, oh, what does it do? It overflows. That's go somewhere. Where does it go? The floor, right? So, so what this passage is saying is when we are comforted by Jesus, that comfort overflows us, and it flows out from us to somewhere else. Where does it go? Verse 4, look at it again. He comforts us all in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comforts we receive from God. So check this out. Uh, uh, track with me. I, I know I may have lost you, but let me try to dial it back in. We who follow Jesus are able to comfort anyone facing any kind of affliction when we are comforted by Jesus for suffering because we follow him. This is what a cruciformed life looks like. Look at verse 6. 
if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Now track with Paul here. What he's saying is, if you shape your life around yourself, affliction is meaningless. Let me say it again. If you shape your world around yourself, affliction is meaningless. Why? Because it's an affront to how the world should be. Because if you believe the world should be a certain way for you, and it doesn't go that way, then it is absolutely meaningless when you suffer. We, and what happens is we then we wallow in self-pity, and we raise our fists to the world, and we say things like, how dare you? And we say things like, I deserve more than this. I deserve better than this. And so what pain and sorrow does is all it does is it makes us bitter and jaded. And then if we ever actually do get comfort, all that comfort does was it assuages our pain, makes us feel better for the moment. But if you live a cruciformed life, it's different. When you are afflicted, it is for other people's comfort and salvation. What the heck does that mean? Let me give you an example. A friend of mine, he once said, uh, he said, um, if you don't like lots of people being mad at you and telling everybody that they're mad at you, don't be a pastor. Um, and I felt that deeply. Uh, and it reminded me of a conversation I had with a friend last year. And um, this friend of mine had walked away from Jesus and their life had spiraled out of control. And I told them, I said, when you turned your back on Jesus and the church and the Bible and Christian friends, sin took free reign in your life. And the results are becoming very, very apparent. And it was a rough conversation. But I had to let this person know that, 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 that sin was kind of catching up to them. And I, I knew it was a, a risky conversation. They could get angry. They could run out and tell people that I was mistreating them. But it had to be said, even at the risk of losing this friendship. And what I was doing was, in a sense, I was trying to allow Christ's sufferings to overflow onto me uh, for, by standing for something and saying, and, and my goal was for their comfort and salvation, not for mine, right? And I'll tell you, I would rather ride my motorcycle. I would rather watch a baseball game. I would rather get a root canal than have conversations like that. But that's what a cruciform life does. We take the L. Because it's not about our comfort. It's about other people's comfort. It's about their salvation. And when we do get comfort, it's not for us either. It is, what does he say? For you. It's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. You know, Jesus could have made it so that anyone who believes in him is immediately plucked out of this world and put at his side. But he didn't do it. And part of the reason is, we see in scripture, because suffering is what matures us. Patience, endurance, in, in, it, 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 it matures us. This phrase is echoed by Jesus' brother in James, where he says this, consider it a great joy my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Somehow, the path to lacking in nothing, the path to maturity, the path to completeness is through suffering, so much so that James could say, you know what, when you face any kind of trial, you should consider that a great joy. <laughs> we see this most clearly 
in Jesus. Jesus suffered more than any of us could possibly imagine on the cross. Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends. He was tortured and executed on a cross with a crown of thorns jammed onto his head and a spear thrust into his side and nails pierced through his wrists and his hands. And through that affliction, he gives us comfort because he takes away the eternal punishment that we deserve. Jesus, through his own suffering, makes us mature and complete, lacking in nothing, and that's how he sees us next to him in glory right now. And so when we face testing of our faith and we face affliction and we face a suffering, we can endure because we know how the story ends. That's what it means to live a cruciform life. So I'm gonna let Paul give us the last word today. Verse seven, he says, and our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, you will also share in the comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this crazy book. And um, we thank you that Jesus is the one who was afflicted, that he is a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we thank you that he, in his suffering, in his affliction, he makes us complete and mature. And so we just pray that we would live a life in the shape of the cross. That as we enter into this next season, this 27-week season of looking at this stuff, we just pray that you would teach us deeply what it means to follow you in a world that is suffering as people who are suffering ourselves. We just pray that the comfort that you give us would overflow to other people and it would transform our community. And so we pray this all in the crucified name of Jesus. Amen.